Section 7 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Saturday, 28th August. Dr. Johnson had brought a sallust with him in his pocket from Edinburgh. He gave it last night to Mr. Macaulay's son, a smart young lad, about eleven years old. Dr. Johnson had given an account of the education at Oxford in all its gradations. The advantage of being a servitor to a youth of little fortune struck Mrs. Macaulay much. I observed it aloud. Dr. Johnson very handsomely and kindly said that if they would send their boy to him when he was ready for the university, he would get him made a servitor and perhaps would do more for him. He could not promise to do more, but would undertake for the servitorship. I should have mentioned that Mr. White, a Welshman, who has been many years factor, i.e. steward on the estate of Calder, drank tea with us last night, and upon getting a note from Mr. Macaulay, asked us to his house. We had not time to accept of his invitation. He gave us a letter of introduction to Mr. Fern, master of stores at Fort George. He showed it to me. It recommended two celebrated gentlemen, no less than Dr. Johnson, author of his dictionary, and Mr. Boswell, known in Edinburgh by the name of Powley. He said he hoped I had no objection to what he had written. If I had, he would alter it. I thought it was a pity to check his effusions and acquiesced, taking care, however, to seal the letter, that it might not appear that I had read it. A conversation took place about saying grace at breakfast, as we do in Scotland, as well as at dinner and supper in which Dr. Johnson said, It is enough if we have stated seasons of prayer, no matter when. A man may as well pray when he mounts his horse, or a woman when she milks her cow, which Mr. Grant told us is done in the Highlands, as at meals, and custom is to be followed. We proceeded to Fort George. When we came into the square, I sent a soldier with a letter to Mr. Fern. He came to us immediately, and along with him came Major Bruce of the Engineers, pronounced Bruce. He said he believed it was originally the same Norman name with Bruce, that he had dined at a house in London, where were three Bruces, one of the Irish line, one of the Scottish line, and himself of the English line. He said he was shown it in the Herald's office spelt fourteen different ways. I told him the different spellings of my name. Dr. Johnson observed, that there had been great disputes about the spelling of Shakespeare's name. At last it was thought it would be settled by looking at the original copy of his will, but upon examining it he was found to have written it himself no less than three different ways. Mr. Fern and Major Bruce first carried us to wait on Sir Eyre Coote, whose regiment, the 37th, was lying here, and who then commanded the fort. He asked us to dine with him, which we agreed to do. Before dinner we examined the fort. The Major explained the fortification to us, and Mr. Fern gave us an account of the stores. Dr. Johnson talked of the proportions of charcoal and saltpetre in making gunpowder, of granulating it, and of giving it a gloss. He made a very good figure upon these topics. He said to me afterwards that he had talked ostentatiously. We reposed ourselves a little in Mr. Fern's house. He had everything in neat order, as in England, 
and a tolerable collection of books. I looked into Pennant's tour in Scotland. He says little of this fort, but that the barracks, etc., form several streets. This is aggrandizing. Mr. Fern observed, if he had said they form a square, with a row of buildings before it, he would have given a juster description. Dr. Johnson remarked, How seldom descriptions correspond with realities, and the reason is that people do not write them till some time after, and then their imagination has added circumstances. We talked of Sir Adolphus Orton. The Major said he knew a great deal for a military man. Johnson Sir, you will find few men of any profession who know more. Sir Adolphus is a very extraordinary man, a man of boundless curiosity and unwearied diligence. I know not how the Major contrived to introduce the contest between Warburton and Lothe. Johnson. Warburton kept his temper all along, while Lothe was in a passion. Lothe published some of Warburton's letters. Warburton drew him on to write some very abusive letters, and then asked his leave to publish them, which he knew Lothe could not refuse after what he had done, so that Warburton contrived that he should publish, apparently with Lothe's consent, what could not but show Lothe in a disadvantageous light. At three the drum beat for dinner. I, for a little while, fancied myself a military man, and it pleased me. We went to Sir Eyre Coote's at the Governor's house, and found him a most gentlemanlike man. His lady is a very agreeable woman, with an uncommonly mild and sweet tone of voice. There was a pretty large company, Mr. Fern, Major Bruce, and several officers. Sir Eyre had come from the East Indies by land through the deserts of Arabia. He told us the Arabs could live five days without victuals and subsist for three weeks on nothing else but the blood of their camels, who could lose so much of it as would suffice for that time, without being exhausted. He highly praised the virtue of the Arabs, their fidelity if they undertook to conduct any person, and said they would sacrifice their lives rather than let him be robbed. Dr. Johnson, who is always for maintaining the superiority of civilised over uncivilised men, said, Why, sir, I can see no superior virtue in this. A sergeant and twelve men, who are my guard, will die rather than that I shall be robbed. Colonel Pennington of the 37th Regiment took up the argument with a good deal of spirit and ingenuity. Pennington, but the soldiers are compelled to this by fear of punishment. Johnson, well, sir, the Arabs are compelled by the fear of infamy. Pennington, the soldiers have the same fear of infamy and the fear of punishment besides, so have less virtue, because they act less voluntarily. Lady Coote observed very well that it ought to be known if there was not among the Arabs some punishment for not being faithful on such occasions. We talked of the stage. I observed that we had not now such a company of actors as in the last age, Wilkes, Booth, etc., etc. Johnson. You think so, because there is one who excels all the rest so much. You compare them with Garrick, and see the deficiency. Garrick's great distinction is his universality. He can represent all modes of life, but that of an easy, fine-bred gentleman. Pennington. He should give over playing young parts. Johnson. He does not take them now, but he does not leave off those which he has been used to play because he does them better than anyone else can do them. If you had generations of actors, if they swarmed like bees, 
the young ones might drive off the old. Mrs. Sibber, I think, got more reputation than she deserved, as she had a great sameness, though her expression was undoubtedly very fine. Mrs. Clive was the best player I ever saw. Mrs. Pritchard was a very good one, but she had something affected in her manner. I imagine she had some player of the former age in her eye which occasioned it. Colonel Pennington said Garrick sometimes failed in emphasis, as, for instance, in Hamlet, I will speak daggers to her, but use none, instead of I will speak daggers to her, but use none. We had a dinner of two complete courses, variety of wines, and the regimental band of music playing in the square before the windows after it. I enjoyed this day much. We were quite easy and cheerful. Dr. Johnson said, I shall always remember this fort with gratitude. I could not help being struck with some admiration at finding upon this barren sandy point such buildings, such a dinner, such company. It was like enchantment. Dr. Johnson, on the other hand, said to me more rationally that it did not strike him as anything extraordinary, because he knew here was a large sum of money expended in building a fort, here was a regiment. If there had been less than what we found, it would have surprised him. He looked coolly and deliberately through all the gradations. My warm imagination jumped from the barren sands to the splendid dinner and brilliant company, to borrow the expression of an absurd poet, without ands or ifs, I leapt from off the sands upon the cliffs. The whole scene gave me a strong impression of the power and excellence of human art. We left the fort between six and seven o'clock. Sir Eyre Coote, Colonel Pennington and several more accompanied us downstairs and saw us into our chaise. There could not be greater attention paid to any visitors. Sir Eyre spoke of the hardships which Dr. Johnson had before him. Boswell. Considering what he has said of us, we must make him feel something rough in Scotland. Sir Eyre said to him, You must change your name, sir. Boswell. Aye, to Dr. MacGregor. Mr. Keith, the collector of excise here, my old acquaintance at Eyre, who had seen us at the fort, visited us in the evening and engaged us to dine with him next day, promising to breakfast with us and take us to the English chapel, so that we were at once commodiously arranged. Not finding a letter here that I expected, I felt a momentary impatience to be at home. Transient clouds darkened my imagination, and in those clouds I saw events from which I shrunk. But a sentence or two of the rambler's conversation gave me firmness, and I considered that I was upon an expedition for which I had wished for years, and the recollection of which would be a treasure to me for life. Sunday, 29th August. Mr. Keith breakfasted with us. Dr. Johnson expiated rather too strongly upon the benefits derived to Scotland from the Union and the bad state of our people before it. I am entertained with his copious exaggeration upon that subject, but I am uneasy when people are by who do not know him as well as I do and may be apt to think him narrow-minded. I therefore diverted the subject. The English chapel to which we went this morning was but mean. The altar was a bare fur table with a coarse stool for kneeling on, covered with a piece of thick sailcloth doubled by way of cushion. The congregation was small. 
Mr. Tate, the clergyman, read prayers very well, though with much of the Scotch accent. He preached on love your enemies. It was remarkable that, when talking of the connections amongst men, he said that some connected themselves with men of distinguished talents, and since they could not equal them, tried to deck themselves with their merit by being their companions. The sentence was to this purpose. It had an odd coincidence with what might be said of my connecting myself with Dr. Johnson. After church we walked down to the quay. We then went to Macbeth's castle. I had a romantic satisfaction in seeing Dr. Johnson actually in it. It perfectly corresponds with Shakespeare's description, which Sir Joshua Reynolds has so happily illustrated in one of his notes on our immortal poet. This castle hath a pleasant seat. The air nimbly and sweetly recommends itself unto our gentle sense, etc. Just as we came out of it, a raven perched on one of the chimney-tops and croaked. Then I repeated, The raven himself is hoarse that croaks the fatal entrance of Duncan under my battlements. We dined at Mr. Keith's. Mrs. Keith was rather too attentive to Dr. Johnson, asking him many questions about his drinking only water. He repressed that observation by saying to me, You may remember that Lady Errol took no notice of this. Dr. Johnson has the happy art, for which I have heard my father praise the old Earl of Aberdeen, of instructing himself by making every man he meets tell him something of what he knows best. He led Keith to talk to him of the excise in Scotland, and, in the course of conversation, mentioned that his friend Mr. Thrale, the great brewer, paid £20,000 a year to the revenue, and that he had four casks, each of which holds 1,600 barrels, above a thousand hogsheads. After this there was little conversation that deserves to be remembered. I shall, therefore, here again glean what I have omitted on former days. Dr. Gerard at Aberdeen told us that when he was in Wales, he was shown a valley inhabited by Danes, who still retain their own language, and are quite a distinct people. Dr. Johnson thought it could not be true, or all the kingdom must have heard of it. He said to me as we travelled, these people, sir, that Gerard talks of, may have somewhat of a peregrinity in their dialect, which relation has augmented to a different language. I asked him if peregrinity was an English word. He laughed and said, No. I told him this was the second time that I had heard him coin a word. When Foote broke his leg, I observed that it would make him fitter for taking off George Faulkner as Peter Paragraph, poor George having a wooden leg. Dr. Johnson at that time said, George will rejoice at the depidation of foot. And when I challenged that word, laughed, and owned he had made it, and added that he had not made above three or four in his dictionary. Having conducted Dr. Johnson to our inn, I begged permission to leave him for a little, that I might run about and pay some short visits to several good people of Inverness. He said to me, You have all the old-fashioned principles, good and bad. I acknowledge I have. That of attention to relations in the remotest degree, or to worthy persons, in every state whom I have once known, I inherit from my father. It gave me much satisfaction to hear everybody at Inverness speak of him with uncommon regard. Mr. Keith and Mr. Grant, 
whom we had seen at Mr. Macaulay's, supped with us at the inn. We had roasted kid, which Dr. Johnson had never tasted before. He relished it much. Monday, 30th August. This day we were to begin our equitation, as I said, for I would needs make a word too. It is remarkable that my noble and to me most constant friend, the Earl of Pembroke, who, if there is too much ease on my part, will please to pardon what his benevolent gay social intercourse and lively correspondence have insensibly produced, has since hit upon the very same word. The title of the first edition of his lordship's very useful book was, in simple terms, A Method of Breaking Horses and Teaching Soldiers to Ride. The title of the second edition is Military Equitation. We might have taken a chaise to Fort Augustus, but, had we not hired horses at Inverness, we should not have found them afterwards, so we resolved to begin here to ride. We had three horses, for Dr. Johnson, myself and Joseph, and one which carried our portmanteaus, and two Highlanders who walked along with us, John Hay and Lachlan Vass, whom Dr. Johnson has remembered with credit in his journey, though he has omitted their names. Dr. Johnson rode very well. About three miles beyond Inverness we saw, just by the road, a very complete specimen of what is called a Druid's temple. There was a double circle, one of very large, the other of smaller stones. Dr. Johnson justly observed that to go and see one Druidical temple is only to see that it is nothing, for there is neither art nor power in it, and seeing one is quite enough. It was a delightful day. Loch Ness and the road upon the side of it, shaded with birch trees, and the hills above it pleased us much. The scene was as sequestered and agreeably wild as could be desired, and for a time engrossed all our attention. To see Dr. Johnson in any new situation is always an interesting object to me, and as I saw him now for the first time on horseback, jaunting about at his ease in quest of pleasure and novelty, the very different occupations of his former laborious life, his admirable production, his London, his rambler, etc., etc., immediately presented themselves to my mind, and the contrast made a strong impression on my imagination. When we had advanced a good way by the side of Loch Ness, I perceived a little hut with an old-looking woman at the door of it, I thought here might be a scene that would amuse Dr. Johnson, so I mentioned it to him. "'Let's go in,' said he. We dismounted, and we and our guides entered the hut. It was a wretched little hovel of earth only, I think, and for a window had only a small hole which was stopped with a piece of turf that was taken out occasionally to let in light. In the middle of the room or space which we entered was a fire of peat, the smoke going out at a hole in the roof. She had a pot upon it with goat's flesh boiling. There was at one end under the same roof, but divided by a kind of partition made of wattles, a pen or fold in which we saw a good many kids. Dr. Johnson was curious to know where she slept. I asked one of the guides to question her in a nurse. She answered with a tone of emotion, saying, as he told us, she was afraid we wanted to go to bed to her. This coquetry, or whatever it may be called, of so wretched a being, was truly ludicrous. Dr. Johnson and I afterwards were merry upon it. 
I said it was he who alarmed the poor woman's virtue. No, sir, said he. She'll say, there came a wicked young fellow, a wild dog, who I believe would have ravished me had there not been with him a grave old gentleman who repressed him. But when he gets out of the sight of his tutor, I'll warrant you he'll spare no woman he meets, young or old. No, sir, I replied. She'll say, there was a terrible ruffian who would have forced me, had it not been for a civil, decent young man, who, I take it, was an angel sent from heaven to protect me. Dr. Johnson would not hurt her delicacy by insisting on seeing her bedchamber, like Archer in the bow stratagem. But my curiosity was more ardent. I lighted a piece of paper and went into the place where the bed was. There was a little partition of wicker rather more neatly done than that for the fold, and close by the wall was a kind of bedstead of wood with heath upon it by way of bed at the foot of which I saw some sort of blankets or covering rolled up in a heap. The woman's name was Fraser, so was her husband's. He was a man of eighty. Mr. Fraser of Balnain allows him to live in this hut and keep sixty goats for taking care of his woods, where he then was. They had five children, the eldest only thirteen. Two were gone to Inverness to buy meal, the rest were looking after the goats. This contented family had four stacks of barley, twenty-four sheaves in each. They had a few fowls. We were informed that they lived all the spring without meal, upon milk and curds and whey alone. What they got for their goats, kids and fowls maintains them during the rest of the year. She asked us to sit down and take a dram. I saw one chair. She said she was as happy as any woman in Scotland. She could hardly speak any English except a few detached words. Dr. Johnson was pleased at seeing, for the first time, such a state of human life. She asked for snuff. It is her luxury, and she uses a great deal. We had none, but gave her sixpence apiece. She then brought out her whisky bottle. I tasted it, as did Joseph and our guides, so I gave her sixpence more. She sent us away with many prayers in earth. We dined at a public house called the General's Hut from General Wade, who was lodged there when he commanded in the north. Near it is the meanest parish kirk I ever saw. It is a shame it should be on a high road. After dinner we passed through a good deal of mountainous country. I had known Mr. Trappo, the deputy governor of Fort Augustus, twelve years ago, at a circuit at Inverness, where my father was judge. I sent forward one of our guides and Joseph with a card to him, that he might know Dr. Johnson and I were coming up, leaving it to him to invite us or not. It was dark when we arrived. The inn was wretched. Government ought to build one or give the resident governor an additional salary as in the present state of things he must necessarily be put to a great expense in entertaining travellers. Joseph announced to us, when we alighted, that the governor waited for us at the gate of the fort. We walked to it. He met us, and with much civility conducted us to his house. It was comfortable to find ourselves in a well-built little square and a neatly furnished house, in good company, and with a good supper before us. In short, with all the conveniences of civilised life in the midst of rude mountains. Mrs. Trappo and the governor's daughter and her husband, Captain Newmarsh, 
were all most obliging and polite. The governor had excellent animal spirits, the conversation of a soldier, and somewhat of a Frenchman, to which his extraction entitles him. He is brother to General Cyrus Trepo. We passed a very agreeable evening. Tuesday, 31st August. The governor has a very good garden. We looked at it, and at the rest of the fort, which is but small, and may be commanded from a variety of hills around. We also looked at the galley or sloop belonging to the fort, which sails upon the loch, and brings what is wanted for the garrison. Captains Urie and de Rip, of the 15th Regiment of Foot, breakfasted with us. They had served in America, and entertained Dr. Johnson much with an account of the Indians. He said he could make a very pretty book out of them were he to stay there. Governor Trappo was much struck with Dr. Johnson. I like to hear him, said he. It is so majestic. I shall be glad to hear him speak in your court. He pressed us to stay dinner, but I considered that we had a rude road before us which we could more easily encounter in the morning and that it was hard to say when we might get up, were we to sit down to good entertainment, in good company. I therefore begged the governor would excuse us. Here too I had another very pleasing proof how much my father is regarded. The governor expressed the highest respect for him, and bade me tell him that if he would come that way on the northern circuit, he would do him all the honours of the garrison. Between twelve and one we set out, and travelled eleven miles through a wild country till we came to a house in Glen Morrison called Annach, kept by a McQueen. Our landlord was a sensible fellow. He had learnt his grammar, and Dr. Johnson justly observed that a man is the better for that as long as he lives. There were some books here, a treatise against drunkenness translated from the French, a volume of The Spectator, a volume of Prideaux's Connection, and Cyrus's Travels. McQueen said he had more volumes, and his pride seemed to be much piqued that we were surprised at his having books. Near to this place we had passed a party of soldiers, under a sergeant's command, at work upon the road. We gave them two shillings to drink. They came to our inn and made merry in the barn. We went and paid them a visit, Dr. Johnson saying, Come, let's go, and give them another shilling apiece. We did so and he was saluted, my lord, by all of them. He is really generous, loves influence, and has the way of gaining it. He said, I am quite feudal, sir. Here I agree with him. I said I regretted I was not the head of a clan. However, though not possessed of such an hereditary advantage, I would always endeavour to make my tenants follow me. I could not be a patriarchal chief, but I would be a feudal chief. The poor soldiers got too much liquor. Some of them fought and left blood upon the spot and cursed whisky next morning. The house here was built of thick turfs and thatched with thinner turfs and heath. It had three rooms in length and a little room which projected. Where we sat, the side walls were wainscotted, as Dr. Johnson said, with wicker, very neatly plaited. Our landlord had made the hole with his own hands. After dinner, McQueen sat by us a while and talked with us. He said all the laird of Glen Morrison's people would bleed for him if they were well used, but the seventy men had gone out of the Glen to America, that he himself intended to go next year, 
for that the rent of his farm, which twenty years ago was only five pounds, was now raised to twenty pounds, that he could pay ten pounds and live, but no more. Dr. Johnson said he wished McQueen Laird of Glen Morrison and the Laird to go to America. McQueen very generously answered he should be sorry for it, for the Laird could not shift for himself in America as he could do. I talked of the officers whom we had left today, how much service they had seen, and how little they had got for it, even of fame. Johnson. Sir, a soldier gets as little as any man can get. Boswell. Goldsmith has acquired more fame than all the officers last war who were not generals. Johnson. Why, sir, you will find ten thousand fit to do what they did, before you find one who does what Goldsmith has done. You must consider that a thing is valued according to its rarity. A pebble that paves the street is in itself more useful than the diamond upon a lady's finger. I wish our friend Goldsmith had heard this. I yesterday expressed my wonder that John Hay, one of our guides, who had been pressed aboard a man of war, did not choose to continue in it longer than nine months, after which time he got off. Johnson. Why, sir, no man will be a sailor who has contrivance enough to get himself into a jail, for being in a ship is being in a jail, with the chance of being drowned. We had tea in the afternoon, and our landlord's daughter, a modest civil girl, very neatly dressed, made it for us. She told us she had been a year at Inverness and learnt reading and writing, sewing, knotting, working lace and pastry. Dr. Johnson made her a present of a book which he had bought at Inverness. The room had some deals laid across the joists as a kind of ceiling. There were two beds in the room, and a woman's gown was hung on a rope to make a curtain of separation between them. Joseph had sheets, which my wife had sent with us, laid on them. We had much hesitation whether to undress or lie down with our clothes on. I said at last, I'll plunge in, there will be less harbour for vermin about me when I am stripped. Dr. Johnson said he was like one hesitating whether to go into the cold bath. At last he resolved too. I observed he might serve a campaign. Johnson, I could do all that can be done by patience. Whether I should have strength enough, I know not. He was in excellent humour. To see the rambler as I saw him to-night was really an amusement. I yesterday told him I was thinking of writing a poetical letter to him on his return from Scotland in the style of Swift's humorous epistle in the character of Mary Gulliver to her husband Captain Lemuel Gulliver on his return to England from the country of the Hoyons. At early morn I to the market haste studious in everything to please thy taste a curious fowl and asparagus i chose for i remember you were fond of those three shillings cost the first the last seven groats sullen you turn from both and call for oats he laughed and asked in whose name i would write it i said in mrs thrale's he was angry sir if you have any sense of decency or delicacy you won't do that boswell then let it be in Coles, the landlord of the Mitre Tavern, where we have so often sat together. Johnson. Aye, that may do. After we had offered up our private devotions, and had chatted a little from our beds, Dr. Johnson said, God bless us both, for Jesus Christ's sake. Good night. 
I pronounced Amen. He fell asleep immediately. I was not so fortunate for a long time. I fancied myself bit by innumerable vermin under the clothes, and that a spider was travelling from the wainscot towards my mouth. At last I fell into insensibility. End of section 7